Hello and welcome to Wonderful. I'm David Pearl, the founder of Street Wisdom, and this is a podcast we've designed for anyone who wants to get some inspiration on the go. Today, a lot of us are listening to podcasts while we walk. Wonderful is a podcast designed specifically for that, a podcast to walk to, something to put a bit of wonder in your wonder. You're welcome to listen to this as you wander around your home or lying on the sofa even. You'll find inspiration is actually everywhere. But if you've got a bit of time, and let's face it, we've all got a bit of time, let's boot up and head out into the street. So hello, wander ellers and wander fellas, wander easters, wander lovers all, wherever thou may wander, hello. I was nearly going to say buongiorno, but I've just got back from Italy um, and I'm adjusting. I'm adjusting to not saying that stuff. Um, and adjusting to the wind, which you will no doubt hear, dear listeners, as, uh, as I speak. But the wind has come to join the podcast recording. And yet again, Andrew Payne is sitting in the warmth in his studio, watching me out here via WhatsApp. I'm not going to say anything. You draw your own conclusions. Hope you're well. Hope you're wandering and finding treasures as you do so. I just bumped into somebody out here, literally bumped into somebody I haven't seen for four years, who was at a talk I gave about street wisdom at the Action for Happiness group, uh, which if you haven't checked them out, they're brilliant. Check them out. So there you are. You just never know who you're going to meet. Um, last night, I came through customs, which was a joy, as you can imagine. Um, and I got asked a question I kind of least like, which is, what do you do? And I said the following words. I said, um, um, just because sometimes the easiest thing to say is management consultant, which isn't really what I do, but it's sort of, some people describe it as that. And the, um, the border guard's eyes did what Andrew Payne's eyes just did, which is to glaze over. They're like, what's that? And it's a good question because the term covers a many many different activities you know often from the very very technical they help businesses work on very technical data driven things um right over to very 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 strategic stuff sitting in boardrooms helping leaders direct their companies um they do a lot of work on on sort of solving problems and frankly there are quite a few problems around and they're really good at that and also on what people should do you know what companies should do I often work with management consultants on the how they're going to do it and also really how to excite and engage people in getting stuff done, which sort of, I draw on my you know, theatre background to do that kind of stuff. And it's in that context that I met many years ago today's guest. How's that? How is that for a link? Getting the thumbs up from Andrew Payne. Good. Well, Arna Gast. Arna Gast. I've worked with him in many different places in the world over many years. And um, you know, I mentioned my background as a performer. In the performing arts, we've got this phrase, uh, ensemble. It's a bit like a band, but ensemble is like, you know, a group of virtuosi that get together and play together. And I think of Arna as one of the ensemble, one of my ensemble. And when he and I work together, it's a little bit more like, I don't know, we're riffing, we're jamming. It's like, uh, you know, he's on drums, I'm on sax. I was going to say, you know, I'm the tenor, he's the soprano, but if you met Arna, he's definitely a baritone, if not a bass baritone. He has the, the stature and the gravitas of, of a baritone, certainly. Um, 
And you know, I've worked with him a lot, but I hadn't really, in some ways, you know, I didn't really get to know parts of Arna until the conversation we had for Wonderful. I managed to lure him into the studio and had a conversation about where, you know, where does he get his energy? Because he's an incredibly energetic guy. Where does he get his optimism? Because he's always working with, um, on very knotty subjects, including, as you'll hear, sustainability and reclaiming land from the sea and, and so on and so forth. And his relish and his curiosity is, uh, remains undimmed. And it's a, uh, something I massively admire. Um, so I hope you enjoy our conversation. I know you will. And uh, we start, when I started talking to him, I started ferreting underneath the business exterior into, 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 to, try, to try and find the young Arna and see what he was like at school and and i was very i was very struck and touched by what he had to say about about his um, attitude to learning so here he is on a guest management consultant extraordinaire yeah i think at the core of my educational experience is uh, there's always one teacher core right right uh, for me, it was uh, Meneer Bone, Mr. Bone. I think it's like at the age of nine or ten. And he picked me out and said, I'm going to, you and another girl who was way more intelligent than I am, we're going to progress you a grade. He was also like the, the singer of the, the, the leader of the local church choir. He was also an amazing handicap guy. He made his old puzzles of wood he would give us to solve. And I think that left an imprint for me. I wanted to work f- with him, for him, make extra stuff and it propelled me forward in in think what amazing stuff education can do mm. and yes my brother and sister always make fun of me that i would go to every teacher in the new school and would say great i'm here to learn how can you help <laughs> but I, I had from that like find the teachers who really like to teach yeah and offer your body to science and say i'm here to be taught i really want to have the blood coming from my ears yeah. i want to learn and and I've done that in university in, in Rotterdam. I've done it at INSEAD. Um, uh, uh, same, I went to some professors at INSEAD saying, this is the official curriculum. I've got some time at hand. Can I work with you? So I was part of the team reading the Blue Ocean, uh, writing the Blue Ocean book at that moment. I just went to Professor Kim Mawoni and said, I can, can I work with you? Because I, I see something in you. And then people always like it. Um, and it's genuine for you. You, you. That thirst isn't uh, manufactured. No, it's. I just love it. There's nothing more than I love reading books or or or, or, or finding people who know more and exploring thoughts. Mm. Right. It's not so much about uh, repeating what's been said, but more like this amazing feeling of, oh my goodness, is that mm. how it works? Mm. Now, I miss it a little bit in my university education, but economics in Rotterdam, which I, I love. It's a great city and a great university. But coming out of what we call gymnasium, or you would call it uh, grammar school here in uh, in the UK, because you had so many subjects, you always expanded your mind. Like you were interested in economics, but then you had a physics class. You're like, really, is this how it works? And you would bike home. Of course, the Netherlands, we bike a lot. You're like, no, this is how you would come home. It's amazing. And in university, when you go into one subject, and it's economics, and, you know, economics is amazing, but we go to marketing or business, it's not amazing, right? It's just this is how it works. Mm -hmm. 
So I always motivate my own children, please take topics, subjects that you find amazing because it it blows the mind. Yeah. And that experience is more yeah, enriching than staying in more basic stuff like business. It's like that's, I won't say trade, but it's like how you need to do stuff. Yeah. Um, do you think, you talked before about us being handed a hand grenade, which I think is a really, perhaps we built a hand grenade and handed it to ourselves, but... Do we need to blow our minds in order to deal with this hand grenade? Mm, that is nice. Do we need to blow our minds to deal with the hand grenade? I suppose what I'm also saying is, maybe I'll offer an anecdote that you sparked when you talked about uh, Montessori for managers, which might sound it might sound uh, critical. It's like, well, why would grown-ups need kiddie stuff? But it re you reminded me of something that happened when I'd been working with a group of uh, very senior, very wealthy, very potent uh, mostly male grown-ups, in a pretty precious, precious situation a few years ago. And then, immediately afterwards, I went to Lithuania and worked. At the time, I had a long relationship with a, an orphanage there. And we, I would go every couple of years and we would do a show. And it struck me in the middle of the working with m kids that it's the same. There was something incredibly similar about working with, you know, 50 to 60 year old wealthy affluent influential business mostly men and seven to eight year old lithuanian uh, orphans which was not a critical thing but that there was this sense i had and maybe you could talk about this whether you have the same thing which is that as educated as our business leaders are there are these areas of unknowing and there are these areas of uh, and i see in you you're smiling now there's this there's this uh, mischievous desire to, to help them touch areas that they're not familiar with. Is that right? Yeah, I think your power of words is way bigger than my, you know, vocabulary of 200 words in English, right? But <laughs> like, discovering the world I knew, I think that's, that's this feeling I had in, call it school or call it Montessori. I'm not a Montessori kid, but I, I like the... The, the metaphor for that. Like, like, really, is this how it goes? And I think going towards 2030 or whatever the number is, we are transitioning in the world and we have to blow our mind, discover the world anew, and find, really, is this how it's working? And I, I find that scintillating. I, I like the, we're going to rewrite all the rules. It's not the end of history. It's got, we're only beginning and it's our time in this next decade that we're going to reinvent that. Re we have to do regenerative agriculture together and find find a new world. And and you can't see Anna's face, but he A looks happy and B looks eight um, at the moment. And I wonder, and it's why I love hanging out with you, is that I, left to my own devices and looking at the news and uh, swimming around in what people call reality, I sometimes find myself losing hope does that happen for you? And if not, or when it does, what? Where does this? Where does this sunny hope that I can see in you come from? The is it optimism? Is it hope? I'm not sure. But there's a kind of appetite for the future. Where does that come from? Yeah, it's hope. Yeah, it's hope. Um, and it goes back to I studied a year at Ole Miss, the University of Mississippi, when I was 18 years old. Amazing. I had a, a scholarship to go to the United States, and there's a. Uh, a William Faulkner text on the library. 
And now I have to quote him, you know, for my mind, which is going to be tough. But the idea is man will not survive, he will prevail. Mm. It's not the survive word. Be, and it's from his accepting speech for the Nobel Prize of Literature. Mm. And he says, because we are humans and we have emotions and we have the human side to connect. Mm. Something like that. So I am really positive, but I thrive on a little bit of tension. Mm. I like going on the sports pitch and say, guys, this is going to be a tough match today. And you look at your band of brothers like this, this five minutes before the game and you're like, it's going to be scary. <laughs> I like that. And and that's what I do in the work, right? I, I work mostly on change in the highest stake transformations companies are in. That's my profession. I thrive on that. It's not going to be possible, but we're going to try. Yeah. And then the way how we surprise ourselves yeah. and how we all get to new askers, and we should not, ha- we could not have told it up front that this is going to be it because we're like, oh my goodness. Mm. So I get hope because we will get to a new S-curve with humanity. I have no doubt about it. I like the tension we're going to go through. And I know we're going to reinvent ourselves, which I like too. Mm. But I know other people, you know, sometimes I work with people, they come into the, whatever, the change unit or the transformation office or the, the network leaders. And some people after two weeks said, I cannot handle it. Mm. It's too much unclarity. Mm. It's too much feeling our way through. Mm. So it's, it's a DNA, I call it disorder, that I, I like the starting things anew. And when something gets too stable, mm. I want to move on. For me, creativity is about, we've stepped into a studio, you're at your mic, I'm at my mic, we haven't got a plan, we've got, there's your mind, there's my mind, there's a shared intention here, and we are discovering what pops out between us. It's partly why we're here, is to go, what might come out from the, from the conversation between, in the space between Anna and, and David? And I, I think that's, you know, I'm thinking a bit about what you said about back to Europe, your home, it's where your feet are wet and it's where you feel the work needs to be done. And I get excited about drawing, gathering people together the way we're doing now, but more people in order to see what there is in the space between us. If this was your kingdom, <laughs> what is, and, and you had to, you had to point out one thing in Europe, and this is hard, you know, you haven't prepared this, but what would you change? What, what, where would you, where would you have us as an ensemble be looking to make, to make difference? To which, which, where would you want us to go off piste and get lost in order to find new discoveries as Europe? Big one. I think there would be two things, David. So the what and the how. The what for me is education. Huh. Now, that might be myoptic. Yeah, I think we have the highest educated society in the world and to be honest it's also the only thing we got we got some old buildings and we've got education that's what we got right um in the past to be dutch blunt right we got wealth from colonies they don't want us back right that's not gonna reinstate uh in the netherlands we've got natural gas it's running out and there are earthquakes so the Dutch disease, as we call it, you get money from that. It's not going to come either. So it's us. And we have to educate the hell out of ourselves. And then we would be the first to reinvent education toward, might you call it discovery or endeavor, whatever. Find out the new world is going to be amazing. And I believe the Nordic countries, 
if you look at all the rankings in the world, right? You could do GDP rankings, you could do happiness rankings, you could do society stability rankings. It's usually the Nordic countries around the globe. So there's something there in living together in a stable way, in a happy way, in a healthy way, in an economic productive way, which is going on between Finland, Sweden, Denmark, Norway, the Netherlands, the, the, the north of Europe. There's something interesting to learn from. So I believe we have to educate, discover, learn what is that social technology that is working. Mm-hmm. And and I think it's hard because education is not known as an industry where many people like to work. Maybe industry is really the wrong word. So we have to find teachers again. We have to find people who like to help next generations learn and discover. That's one thing. The how is... I think we have to learn again to talk to each other or what you call reinvent the polar model. Dutch, Dutch society is, is our oldest form of government in the Netherlands is how to run a polar, right? A few dikes, water is outside, we are inside. Let's debate how we keep this in one place. Um, and as all Dutch know, that's pretty scary because the water is like seven meters high and we are minus seven meters. So, so you need, David, you need to maintain your part of the dike. I'll do my part, then we might all survive. Um, and that where it comes like a, a social structure. It was heralded in the whatever the eighties, the nineties, by uh, around the world. How do you have a dialogue amongst each other from employers, employees, the third sect? Like, what do we want? What do we want to create? And how do we, in dialogue, come up with consensus or solution going forward? I think that model over time has become has eroded because we're not really talking to each other anymore. But you see politicians, companies more yelling at each other mm. and trying to get their their you know their share unfair share of media attention by bold statements and throwing it on YouTube and on TikTok, whatever. So rediscovering the art, how do you in a society like circumvented by a dike with the enemy, the war outside there? come to a new image, a new narrative of where do we want to go. And I think, so I'm not, that's why I'm saying, I know education is important than a new narrative or a new dialogue, because I think that's where this, the wisdom is amongst all of us. It's not one silver bullet is, let's start building more tulips and the whole Europe will prosper. Because I think now, you know, the wisdom is in so many different fragments of people that if we can talk to each other and co-create together, mm will find a new place. And maybe I'm a, a sucker for visions, but I like it when some Asian countries or some Middle East countries, they say, this is what I want to build in 2050. Mm. And it might sometimes sound crazy or too bold or really, or is that what you get? But there is a vision. Mm. My prime minister in the in the kingdom of the Netherlands for 12 years, he has the famous saying, if you want a vision, go to your op- ophthalmologist. Mm which is such a, an image of short-termism, of like, what are we just muddle through together? But I think the time now demands for more than muddling through. We need to have together create an image, what do we want to build? But we might end up there, I don't know, but at least it's forward, it's hope, it's a force. Mm. And it's not just we'll deal with everything of the day and then we'll end up somewhere. I like that. Yeah, you heard from that grunt that I love it too. It's it's so many things coming up, but I I... What I hear you say is, let us stretch. Let us exercise our imagination to imagine some things. That has to be one thing. Mm. 
but that goes beyond survival. It's prevailing, not surviving. And my sense is that it's exactly where we need to be working because, as I think of it, the cavalry isn't coming. You look at the newspaper. If we're waiting for politicians to do the visioning for us, we'll wait a long time. Uh, some people find solace in religion, but I think that's much less common that people feel, uh, well, if I, I'll find the answer in the Bible. Of course, some people do. But I think I really like this idea of, I love this idea of the polder where you are forced by the environment to create a space where it is not just desirable, it's essential. It's essential to converse. There's a lot of talk at the moment about um, citizens' assemblies and so on, and the wisdom of the uh, of of the of the, the vox populace, and of course, it you know, politicians like to say I speak for the people, but it's interesting if you've got the heart and the courage, and I've seen you do this, is to excite disagreement, if you like, and see if we can find the truth in the middle of that. Um, lots to think about, but I have a question for you. You talked about the how, and I want again something we were discussing over breakfast. I think you and I have a shared love of teasing. Um, you talked already about the you know, Dutch bluntness, and um, if any of the listeners haven't been to Holland, they are quite blunt. They appear quite blunt. I mean, sometimes if you go into a, um, a, a even a high-end restaurant, don't be offended when they look so grumpy. That's just how they do things. They just throw the soup down, and it's, that's them being polite. Anyway, um, but I'm interested in you know both you and I work in a quite. Uh, in a fee, you know, work in business and, and, and in the high end of it, I suppose, and um, places where certainty is at a premium. And how do you teach there? How do you like to teach? And what is, I've seen you tease the hell out of people and I've done the same. What's that about? Yeah, what's at the core of this? I think I hope to spark some joy in this unknowing that if people can discover in the end it's all it's all an experiment we are doing mm. and yes when you were in school there was a test maybe multiple choice or with a with a rubric how to answer and people still think it's stuff that you are testing if you have the right answer and there's no answer anymore and even the questions are unclear right now and if you can just rejoice in that it's a clean sheet, what we're now doing. And unlucky over here, it happens on our shift. And unlucky over there, in the past, you could look up to your parents or to your you know, father or your teacher to say, is this the right answer? And now when you are 45, 50, 55, you're leading an organization, a company or a nonprofit or a government, it's about us. There's nobody who do the test. Maybe 10 years from now, 20 years, they have an opinion about it, but even it's an experiment. Mm. And that sometimes can take the load of people's shoulders. Like, mm. in the midst of all the chaos, be calm and still move forward. And, you know, be kind with people because mm. we all have a great battle to find mm. and we're all doing an experiment. So I always have utmost respect for politicians and I have utmost respect for companies where all the, popula the populace will say, ah, you know, this clearly wrong, stupid. These people are, to the best of their abilities, trying to move us forward. Mm. But it's just very hard. Mm. And then I can have an opinion if, you know, you have, I, I have a different opinion, whatever. But I think 
people are trying to move us forward. Mm. And in the past, uh, jokingly, life was easy. Right? In a company, get a little bit more revenues, a little bit less cost, some faster cash. Poof, you could do it from your ivory tower. Mm. Now, you have to do this CO2 neutral mm. or even net positive. Mm. How to do that? Mm. You have to do a digital transformation. Well, as a 50-year-old, you don't have a hoodie. You don't even know what they talk about. And it's kind of completely havoc your place. Right? It's it's the data pipeline, and that's the whole the heart of the company. Mm. Thirdly, you cannot source from China or Russia or whatever anymore, which was the core of your company often. Rebuild your complete supply chain. Fourthly, could you please do this with full diversity? So can you take your top 100, your top 500, and build in a tension, which we all want, and it's going to be very productive, but it's going to build in a tension in the beginning of who you nominate for certain positions and how we're going to work together. And lastly, can you do all of this while there are also three guys hanging from your building, fighting from Extinction Rebellion or Greenpeace or whatever, demanding attention or in your boardroom there will be a how you call it a, an activist investor with one percent of the shares which he bought last month or she bought last month and saying i want to have more revenue and lower cost and this all at the same time so i think you have to be able to stay deliberate calm but also with a little bit of joy this is an experiment i'm gonna put my best way forward and we're all gonna figure this out and so last week I was at a lecture of Francis Fukuyama and, and I was there with my son who is now in university. And it's so fun because Francis Fukuyama said, well, about every book I had, my first European published was in Amsterdam. I know when I was 18, I was there with the end of history. And I didn't say him, but I wanted to yell at him. I said, I hated that book because it was the end of history. It made me feel it was done. We were at the peak. The S-curve was done, over. Now he comes back and says, man... You know, liberal democracy is, or liberalism in defined in the right way, is under threat from the right, from the left, and we are figuring out a new world. And I'm saying, I love it because I love figuring out a new world. I don't like to be at the end of the, of the chain. It is done. Um, so I hope, so that's what I, I thrive on reinvention and not on and a problem to crack or a, a, like a, a, a world to create. Should we have a chat about the role of story or about some of the some of the methods that we might want to work on or play with in order to accelerate? Because I think that I think that one of the things that creativity can do is it, is get you there faster. People will get there, but we, we're, the race is on. Someone said, you know, there's a race between the head and the heart. It's and that's what he calls the human race, which I think is very nicely nicely put. Bob Lingle said that last last night to me. I thought the human race is the one between the head and the heart, um, and we need them both. But maybe we kick off with um, and feel you know we can we can bat this back and forth. But why you said narrative? You said new narrative. We need a new narrative. You know, say a bit about that, because I think some people could hear that as like marketing bullshit. You know, well, we need a new narrative. You know, narrative is just lying, pretty lying. And certainly uh, politicians 
I, I really appreciate the heartfelt compassion and respect you have for all politicians. I'm not sharing it at quite the same level, although there are a lot of working politicians who deserve, I think, that. But there are some others who are, um, who I don't think are that, uh, well, let's put it this way, who are using the power of story for less than healthy ends. So I think we have to come up with better stories. But say, say what you think about narrative. What is it's drawn you to that? And why do you and I spend so much time working with businesses on their narrative, not just their strategy? In the end, narrative, or is it called dialectics, or what is it called? Like how did the, the old Romans and the Greek would call it? Mm. It's one of the most powerful tools we have. I mean... We're not allowed to chain gang people. We're not allowed to torture them to go to direction. But this is a way how to really inspire people to go to a, to a, to a new world. And I think the mind is a, is a war zone of stories, and the best story wins. That's probably a John Galbraith quote. But the, the idea is how to create something so compelling in people's mind. You can hear it. You can feel it. You want to go there. But I also feel part of that story. So I've got a role to play in that story. It's not a story out there. No. If we would have a blank sheet right now, yeah. no stories at all, we could drop a little story in people's mind. Mm. And of course the word story is dangerous because in some language it translates it to something you made up, like it's a fairy tale or it's not true. Mm. Now, and then we get all other you know, research about it. We have been story sharing humans from so many human years but I think we have to work with people to to create the story the world we want to live in mm. and that takes extra power because there are so many other stories of the world we don't want to live in right now or the problem stories because that's what the news brings and these problem stories are now even how you want to call it amplified because the, the more often you hear about what a, another hurricane or 10 people dead in the U.S. because of a car crash, in the past you wouldn't even hear that. So you would only hear the local car crash, but now you get the car crashes from all around the world or the <laughs> people stuck in the mine or whatever. So the amplification on the bad news is going up, yep. and it limits people from taking agency to say, what, is do, what do I want and what is the world I want to create? Mm. And if you create a little bit of space then that people see... Yeah, we can create this. Hmm. Or it's worth striving for and we'll end up somewhere. I think that's the power of narrative, writing it together. Like, what do I want instead of only complaining what I don't want? It's a, yeah. I saw a wonderful T-shirt. Uh, actually, I didn't see it. A friend of mine, David Micklin, was gave me two phrases that made me so happy. The first was he said he'd seen this T-shirt, which a, wo a woman was, a young black woman walking down the street and the T-shirt said, I've been to the future and we won. And it that sense of if we could time travel and we found out that good things happened, see that, see the, the bounce, the, the certainty, the energy that comes with that. And the other phrase was from what is to what if. That sense of instead of concentrating on what the current stories are, take a breath and use that God or God-given, if you could say, but our birthright is to be able to imagine different futures. Let's use that and let's... Um, I, I talked to somebody uh, about 
about their mind as though it were an art gallery. And I said, you know, it seems to me at the moment you have like Rothko's hanging in your mind. They're all pretty dark and pretty somber. So if, you know, could you put a Van Gogh in there? Yeah. Maybe just one. Could we insert a bright sunflower in, in our mind as a discipline at, at one level and work to that? Because without that, without that shard of light, without the smile I can see on your eyes and that relish for let's now this is, you know, this is our time. Let's create different futures. Without that, I fear that we end up being extras in somebody else's story. And it's not a great story. Yeah. Yeah, Van Gogh is interesting. I I push your Van Gogh story. Do you know early Van Gogh? Much more kind of conventional. Uh, conventional, yeah. grey, yeah. brown. Yeah. The church of noon, like. And one moment, I would say he flips because maybe he really flipped, but it becomes sunflowers. Yeah. So for me, that's also the shift. But do you have in your mind, I like your analogy. Is it like early Van Gogh? No, no. I, Confe- I, I, or you go, bang, what can we create? And at the expense of dying poor and not being known for it. Yeah. And this we spoke about because you, you talked, I think, about transition moments. Like these, not, they're not necessarily pretty. I don't think many of us would want to go through what Van Gogh went through. We like the outcome. But it's going to be messy a lot of the time. The changes that we make, and I think humans are like this, that you sort of, you continue on that curve until it becomes so uncomfortable that you have to make a change, yeah? But it's interesting to me, the, and to see it here in this, we've put ourselves in this slightly artificial situation, but to see that, the joy and the energy and the juice that you've got, and I think I share it for teasing, teasing us into different stories, if you like. Tell me a little bit about, as, uh, um, as we, you know, this conversation needs to continue. We need another eight hours, but it is what it is in terms of earth time. We've probably got another 10 minutes or so. But tell me about um, how apart from story what other ways can we take people into a future that seems misty obscure and quite threatening what other things could we do i know you have i'm leading the witness here but i know you have a love of experience as i do in other words if you can can we experience the future and what would be the value of something like that yeah i think that's the direction we have to start thinking David, the story is the first step. I've seen it without really being there. Mm. And you say it's the the gift we as humans have, right? The oversized prefrontal cortex where we can <laughs> bang, imagine things were not there and it even can frighten us or it can heal us or make us sick. Just by thinking we get the medicine. Uh, and I think that, that antidote we can now use too. The second step then would be, and I sound like a real consultant, well, step one till seven, but the second step would be <laughs> Take a toe in the water as an experiment. But tell yourself all the time, it's an experiment. Because with that, your brain, you know, the, the fear mongerer in your brain, the, the bad weather animal, is still, it's just an experiment. I'm not betting the farm. We're just looking where it is. And can you either find the experiment where it's already happening and amplify it? Because often in your organization at the edges, something is already working. Can you amplify? Or can you start something? Guys, you know, with high psychologically safe, high psychological safety, you would say, guys, it's probably going to fail, but we're going to try. Let's see what it is. So again, not, not the testing it needs to work, but otherwise the whole world come, goes down. 
Um, and that will be very important in the future because to get to this new world, to the transition to the, to the other side, right, for a more sustainable, more inclusive and growing economy, the, old, the, sorry, the, the price is so high to get it right. Or like the, the, there's, the price of failure is so high. We have to stay really calm in going there. A friend of mine, um, she did her PhD research in, in learning with people who is basically people from the, the green world, like uh, uh, sustainability world. These people have been betting their life and they're so committed to, we need to succeed to save the forest, to save the penguin, to save the animals, right? And of course, I'm always making a little bit of fun about certain words. But then realizing that after 10 or 20 years, committing your life to it, the outcomes are still going south. It's very hard to step back and admit this experiment is not working yet. How can we learn and do it better? Because you're so tight to this world, you can always not admit, almost not admit it's not working because it's so necessary that we do it. And so how to do these experiments with the importance so high and still still flexible is I might not have the answer. And while time is ticking, I'm getting I'm still able to change course. I think that's a human skill. So it's like learning. I call it learning squared or, or learning to the max, to the power of max, to think through, it's needed. I want to find a way. It's still an experiment and I'm going to improve it. And I'm not attached to the outcome because I need to find the best outcome or a better way. So be in it and still float a little bit above it. While you're an, an activist, but not but still stay open. And I think the moment you turn into activist and not in learning, not stay in learning, there is a risk you're on the wrong path and you activate us to not the outcome we all want. It's beautiful. I mean, it, as I, I'm not a scientist, but my understanding is that what experimentation is about is testing theories to destruction. You, scientists actually love it when a theory doesn't work because they've discovered something about what isn't in the universe and then they can continue rather than proving it does. Whereas I think a lot of the time in businesses, it's the opposite. It's like, let's test that this does work and then we can be certain about it. Okay, there's a, a metaphor I really love. It's an island in the Netherlands. And the island is called Schokland. And Schokland is a UNESCO World Heritage Site right now. It was there for 10,000 years. It's like peatland, right? When, when the UK and the Netherlands or these landmasses were still connected as one thing, there was no channel in between, right? Hunter-gatherers were roaming around. Later, water came. Ice Age. Water came, water came, water came. Then it was an island. It was a very rich island. Very rich because it was just outside Amsterdam. It was you know, the capital of the world in the 17th century, 80% of GDP flowing through one city, all science, all art in one city. And they were just in front, so the ships would dock there before they went to Amsterdam. Come 1880, 1890, the water was gushing over the island and the dikes were breaking. And King William said, I think King William III, he said, I'm going to move the people of the island for the importance of your children. 
Because you can, and of course the schokkers would say, no, we like, you know, water just comes once in a while, that's our part. No, we're going to move to Jonah. And the island was giving back to nature. Water was flooding around the island. Sometimes you could still see the island a little bit. Sometimes you only would see the church. And the water was rising over. A few years ago, a Dutch artist called Daan Rosengarde did an exhibition. And he put blue laser light at the height, like four meters above the ground, where the water used to be. Water used to be, yes. Because now, of course, as the Dutch people do, we reclaimed that whole part. So now it's a flatland with a little hill with the church and a few houses on it. And that, for me, is the positive way of looking at it, right? Humans, you know, 10,000, 1 million years, we're all living. Water is now up to the dikes. The dikes are breaking, it's coming, and we will reimagine the world. We'll, we'll reclaim the land, we'll reclaim our society for what it is. And then it will be a very fertile ground around it. Because the land where they're reclaimed around, it's the North Ostpol, is very fertile grounds. And we need to reclaim fertile grounds to get there. So when you say I'm a fool, I, th- I usually think I w- I'm here for positive shocks. And people say, oh, Arno, wow, you're already so confrontational now in shocks. But it reminds me of the, the shock land. We need to sometimes move, tease people, have fun with people, see it in the experiment. But it's for the future of the children. Mm. Because that's why we had to move off the island. We need to reclaim land, regenerative, think through what we can create. And if the shocks are positive, I think it's, it's worth living for. And that's what I'm trying to do. So Arne Gast, what a guy, what a, what a curious man, and curious in the right sense. You know, he reminds me of my dad, who was a, I always think of my dad as a lover of life and learning. That's what he says on his gravestone, lover of life and learning. And I think Arne is another one. Um, you know, if you're that curious, what can't you learn? And it puts me in mind, one of the things he said, we were talking about together, was this idea that your mind is like an art gallery. And it occurred to me that this being wonderful, we could do a little process, a little exercise, a little experience together um, where we take that idea and play with it. So shall we do that, Andrew? Andrew's nodding, just for the, just listeners. Uh, uh, just know he's nodding. And um, so what I'd love us to do is that idea of, um, we're going to see the world as though it were in an art gallery. And of course, you know, the thing about art is, is you're, you sort of focus on what's inside the frame. And... Um, we often miss things because they're not framed. We just walk past them. But maybe there are masterpieces hidden in the, uh, in the world around us, but we haven't just focused on them. So what I would love us to do for the next 10 minutes, we're going to wander around. And you're willing, you know, you're more than welcome to join me. Wanderellas and wanderfellas. And I want you to imagine there is a, a frame. You're looking at the world and you can put it like a... I have a golden frame that I can fix in my mind. But another way of doing it is to take your finger, your, your two hands... Andrew, follow me with this. Your fingers and thumbs. And I want you to put the thumb of one hand on the long, the, the, the first finger of the other hand. And vice versa. No. No, that's thumb on... Yeah, that's right. Thumb on thumb. Finger on thumb, thing, thumb on finger. And it creates a kind of, um, you know, like a, a cinemascope framework. And what I want you to do is to, to walk. We'll walk and we'll bring that frame, either physical or in your mind, and allow yourself to look at the world around you, around us, through a frame and see what happens. See if we, uh, see what that does to what we're seeing. See if we can find the wonder 
in the everyday, everyday, as they say. All right, so I'm going to try doing that now. I'm off, so I'm putting my fingers. I'm actually going to use my fingers this time. And um, off we go. And I'm going to look. I'm looking. I'm remembering I can look up. And I'm going to, when something sort of speaks to me, I'm going to sort of little more mentally take a picture. That's right. So you too, Andrew. Off you go. Off we go. There we go. Well, 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 well. That was very interesting. Gosh, <laughs> amazing what can happen in such a short time. I notice Andrew's still trying to figure out his, his, his manual box with his fingers and thumbs settled. So what happened for you? I'll tell you, for me, it was really interesting. Um, I found myself uh, at the side of, it's been raining a bit and I found myself at the side of a constantly muddy puddle at the side of the road and it borders some sort of scrubby uh, undergrowth. What's interesting though when I put my mental frame around it it started looking very Don McCullen. I don't know if you've seen any Don McCullen, the war photographer. He does these kind of country, rather bleak country pictures. But what was interesting was that, that it, the, um, the green of the grass diagonally cut the picture in two and it looked very intentional. In fact, I probably would have called that where the borders meet or border crossing or something like that. It just sort of spoke that way. I then went uh, on my way and looked up and in the distance I, I took a little mental picture and I noticed there was a, um, it was more of a sequence, I don't know if that's cheating, but it was basically there were two people, one young, young person was walking and in the distance there was a jogger jogging along. And what was interesting for me about that is that by putting a frame around it, it, it made it look like they had some sort of relationship. I called it father running in my mind as though that was the father's child. Um, I had no idea, I, they didn't appear to be related, but they did when I put the frame round. And the final one, uh, I call victory. And the reason was, there was a uh, plastic bag, naughty, someone had left a plastic bag by the side of the road. And the wind gusted, as it, it's being gusty at the moment, and it gusted, and this bag rose into the air, a bit like that scene in American Beauty, um, and perfectly landed in a really muddy, sort of scuzzy puddle. And I felt as though I could hear the bag shout, victory! It was like a perfect bag swan dive, exactly where it wanted to be. Uh, so that's more of a moving, that's more of a movie picture, as it were. But I was thinking that there should be more of those Harry Potter-esque pictures that, in frames that continue to move. And I guess that's what, you know, it's a way of looking at the world around you. Something about putting a board around it lets you see the, the beauty, even in the 
squash plastic bag on the filthy water. There's something beautiful about that. Okay, I could go on. And I know deep in your hearts you want me to go on, but I'm looking at Andrew Payne, and he's got that look in his eyes, which is say, David, the episode is over. It is the dying embers of the episode. So I'm going to say, and he's saying, like, get off. So thank you for that subtle hint, Andrew. So I will go, but I just want to say first, huge thanks to Arna uh, for his many years of creative comradeship. And here's to many more. I also want to say thank you to the many people that seem to say hello to me while I am wandering around doing this podcast. I don't know what it is about podcasting or walking around with a fluffy microphone the way I do, but it seems to invite people to be welcoming and nice. What we call in street wisdom, the perfect stranger. Um, and something we could all practice being, right? And I think that's it, other than just to say, always a pleasure, look forward to wandering with you again very soon. Um, get lost, find lunch, and until we meet again, keep it wonderful. Bye. If you enjoyed the podcast, I think you'll really like my book, Wonderful. It's all about how to activate your inner compass so you can find better ways to live, laugh, love and other things beginning with L. You'll find your copy on Amazon. And if that all sounds a bit salesy, the truth is all my proceeds go to my non-profit Street Wisdom, which was set up to offer a fresh new creative practice free to people all over the world. And let's face it, the world could do with a bit more creativity, right? Check out streetwisdom.org and you'll find audio guides, news about where events are taking place and other creative loveliness. If you're looking for your next step, it's a great place to start. So please like and subscribe to the podcast and have a wonderful day. Did you see what I did there, Andrew? When I said next steps, that means like both physical and metaphorical next steps. I guess what we call a play on words. Marketing gold, really.